Have you ever um, just completely misunderstood something that somebody said? Like you just, you thought they said, um, go get the broom when what they said was go clean your room. So you bring a broom and they're looking at you like, what? Are you taking that to your room? No, why would I take it to my room? Because I told you to go clean your room. Oh, I thought you said go get the broom. And you just completely missed what was being said. Um, As I get older and as I get more hair in my ears, I hear worse and worse. And and, and Why are you shaking your head? It's true. (laughs) Sorry. But I don't hear as well as I used to. So like I, I really, I've got to concentrate and make sure that I'm hearing what is said. And again, these masks don't help because I can't watch people's lips. And I can't figure out, oh, they said, bye, 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 not yeah, 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 yeah. And so <clears throat> it's just tough as you get older. Get, getting older is not for sissies, is, is what my boss at Mankin always said to me. And I'm, I'm 46, and I don't know if I'm over the hill, but man, I tell you what, it's, the gravity's starting to grab me. But anyway... I think we all have misunderstood people and done something differently than they wanted us to or just completely misunderstood what they were saying and missed their heart. Maybe it was a text message you got and you read it in a way that didn't convey what they were really thinking or feeling. You read it sarcastically, but they meant it seriously. Well, as we come into this passage today, I think... (laughs) Literally, until this week, I have completely misunderstood this passage. And, and I'm not trying to drop new knowledge and blow minds and, whoa, check out my interpretation of this. I just think I've missed this off the map, what the Lord has been saying for over 2,000 years now. I think I've missed it until the last week of July of 2020. Um, so I want to prepare you for that because... I think we're very familiar with this story, this passage that we're going to read today. And in the context, and context is always king in the scripture, in the context, it makes perfect sense. Out of context, I think we miss the heart of it, the meaning of it, and I think we're going to grab the broom when we should be going to our rooms. So, if you would please stand, we're going to read Matthew 19.30. Through 2016, and by the Lord's grace, unless the rapture happens or I fall over up here, we're going to cover all this today. So, and we stand because we do believe these are the very words of God, and that's worth respecting and honoring with a simple gesture of standing up. So, Matthew 19:30 through 2016. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. Let's pray. God, you have spoken majestically, powerfully, truly in your word. 
And we know that your Holy Spirit gives us the understanding. Your Holy Spirit gives us the power to live out what we're about to learn. And I pray, God, that we would trust you to do what we can't do. Holy Spirit, teach us. Holy Spirit, empower us as we come into this marvelous, wonderful, beautiful word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, and again, not looking for hands or voices, but after me saying this means something different than I've always thought it meant, and then we read it, does it hit you any different? Are you going, oh, oh. Because I literally started into this message and had a basic outline in my head of what we were going to cover, started writing it out, and started going, oh, oh. That's not right. (laughs) Stay with me, okay? Again, not trying to blow your mind, not trying to impress you with my knowledge. Jesus is just a genius, okay? And we're usually not on his wavelength, and the Holy Spirit helps us. So we'll start in 1930, in 2020. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So we ended our passage with this verse last week, with Jesus saying this, After elaborating on riches and the kingdom, after that rich young ruler had walked away sad, that was a couple weeks ago, and he walked away sad following Jesus' call to him to sell all that he had and to follow Jesus. Jesus had told his disciples after that that it is impossible for rich folk to be saved, which they marveled at. And then Jesus went on to say that though it's impossible with and for man, all things are possible with God. So... He established clearly, and we said last week, salvation is solely in the realm of God's doing, God's ability. Only God can save people. With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then, after he said that, Peter asked, what might be in this whole following Jesus deal for them, since they had given up everything to follow Jesus, in contrast to the rich young man? So Peter sees this rich young man walking off sad, And this like the light bulb comes on over Peter's head. He's like, he didn't leave everything to follow Jesus. And he's sad. And and Jesus is, you know, not chasing after him. But, hey, we did leave everything to follow Jesus. What are we going to get? I'm not like that guy. I did what Jesus called me to do. So I bet you that I'm going to get something really, really good in return. And Jesus informed his disciples that they would, in fact, receive back a hundredfold what they had left behind and would also inherit eternal life. And then this phrase, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, we really didn't look at this last week, so we'll investigate it this week a little better. And actually, it starts our passage and ends our passage. Jesus wants to illustrate this saying. This is really, uh, John MacArthur called it a proverb He wants to illustrate this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And that's what's going on in our passage today. Okay, so 21, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, is a parable explaining this phrase. Okay, that's very important. And so that's what we'll look at. And note that the first word of of our first verse today is the word but. And it seems like we go through this a lot, right? There's always that... And then my, my term for it is a contrast, contrastive conjunction. So what's, what has happened here, this is starting in a contrastive way. So what's it contrasting? Jesus is saying the disciples will indeed receive some pretty incredible rewards for their work, receiving back a hundredfold, sitting on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and inheriting eternal life. But... Now, why is that there? Well, I'll tell you this. It sets the tone for Jesus' teaching that we'll see starting in chapter 20, verse 1. And the but here is in a place that shows that its contrastive nature is in contrast to getting rewarded for leaving all and following Jesus. Let me read that again. That's important. The but here is in a place that shows that its contrastive nature is in contrast to getting rewarded for leaving all and following Jesus. Yes, you left all and followed me. And yes, you will receive wonderful rewards in this life and the next. 
But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So, connected to the thought pattern that the first will be last and the last will be first, Jesus starts a parable. And he starts his parable with another phrase that we've seen several times, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now we saw that phrase in Matthew 13 several times in the kingdom parables there. And we also saw it in Matthew 18 when Jesus is talking about the unforgiving servant, if you remember that. He was forgiven much, then he went out and choked his buddy who owed him ten bucks. That was a kingdom of heaven is like parable there too. So the kingdom of heaven is like is another one of those things that perked up the ears of the disciples, capturing their attention, knowing that Jesus was about to really drop some knowledge on them. And their interest in the kingdom, which is really their focus, they want this kingdom set up, their interest in the kingdom would really make them predisposed to really want to hear things about it. So Jesus starts this parable with, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and like, aha, And Jesus is going to help illustrate the upside-down nature of the kingdom and how it's not like the world system at all. And just remember, right now they're in Perea to the east of the Jordan River. Jesus is starting His march into Jerusalem, which will be His last march into Jerusalem, where He's going to lay His life down on the cross, be crucified, buried, and then resurrected. And this is where He's headed, but right now He's on the east side of the Jordan. He's not... Headed that way yet, but his next step will be that way. <clears throat> and all, as always, as he's ministering, as he's teaching, as he's serving, crowds are around him. The Pharisees are there. They're hounding him, surrounding him. And he starts his teaching here to illustrate this pithy last first and first last statement this way. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Now what's that mean? Well... A master of a house is the master of a house. Okay? I mean, that's, that's really what it means. There's nothing hidden there. Um, he's the owner, the main man. He's the guy, the decision maker. And this guy, this master of this house, goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. It's time to harvest the grapes. It's vintage time. And this happened in Israel just before the rainy season. And if they didn't get the grapes in before the rainy season, they would be ruined. So it was a time-sensitive thing. Um, And it would take a lot of labor in a short amount of time to get a maximum return for the season's yield in the vineyard. And this guy obviously had a lot of grapes, a big vineyard, because we're going to see he hires a lot of workers. So he goes into the marketplace looking to hire workers. And what would happen would be commonly these Potential, potential laborers would gather in the square, the marketplace, and they would be looking for people to hire them. Okay, They came to a certain place. They're kind of like, we're the labor pool for today. Pick me. I want to work. Okay, So he goes into the marketplace looking for workers, and every day these people would come, and they called them day laborers, and they'd come into the market square, and they'd stand there, and from day to day... They did not know if they would have work for that day or not. So they get up before the sun comes up and they go stand in the market square. Here we are. Okay? They're looking for people to hire them from one day to the next. Please hire me. I've got to feed my family. I've got to feed myself. If you don't hire me today, i got nothing. And that's what was going on here. It's a very normal process. And just as an aside... As we've mentioned the last two weeks, I've said that we in our day and time in our country are the rich and the wealthy. And this is a vivid reminder of that. These people literally from day to day didn't know if they would be able to work and didn't know if they would get paid and therefore didn't know if they would have anything to eat for the day. It was a day-to-day subsistence type of living. So imagine driving into Beckley, going downtown every day and standing in a place where you're hoping somebody would put you to work that day so that you could have something to eat. That's what's going on here. They're hoping they might get enough work to be close to having enough money to exist that day, that their family would have something for that day. And sometimes the work just wasn't there. So imagine leaving the market square 
going home and you got nothing. And you got, I got four kids. Imagine coming through the door. Hey, daddy, what are we having for dinner today? Nothing, honey. I got nothing for you. That's the status of these workers, okay? They're coming, hoping to have enough for that day. And that's what this master of the house was headed out to find and enlist. And it says he goes early in the morning. The Jewish day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So when you see the first hour, it means 6 a.m. So this guy is up and he's seeking workers before 6 a.m. Okay, next verse. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he shows up at the market square. He finds the labor pool, so to speak. He finds some men to work in his vineyard, and he agrees with them to pay them a denarius for a day's work. Now keep in mind that 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. thing. They agree to labor for a day, which means 12 hours, and their pay was a denarius. Now what's that mean? Actually, a denarius is really a fair wage. That's a good wage. Soldiers were paid a denarius a day. And for these day laborers to get that kind of rate says a lot about this guy who's hiring them. He could have paid them less, and I'm sure that a lot of people did. But he's giving them a good, fair, one-day labor wage. Here's a denarius. And they would have been like, okay, that, that's fair. We like that. And again, I'm sure that these people had been paid less than that many times before. So when he says, I'll give you denarius, they're like, sign me up. Send me to the vineyard. I'm going to work because that's, that's good. So they agree and off they go. And they're very fortunate indeed to find a master who will pay them this very fair wage. And this day's labor just might turn into a few days labor because this guy's got a big vineyard, obviously. Now imagine that. Imagine being a day-to-day guy coming to an agreement with a wealthy man who pays good wages and needs lots of work done. This very well, they might be thinking, this could be our lucky day. This might be our lucky days. We might have several days of work. So let's go to work. And off they go. But now watch this. Verses 3 through 5. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever's right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. Okay, so obviously this guy's looking, we're not going to get this work done, I need more people. And so he goes to find more people. He heads back out about the third hour, which would be 9 a.m. He goes again the sixth hour, which is noon, and the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And each time he finds more guys to work for him. And note his statement to them. He says... You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Now, the fact that they took him up on this says a lot about him. To not negotiate price, but to trust him to give them what is right speaks either to their desperation or his trustworthiness, or maybe both. Either way, he's finding more men to help him in his efforts to get his harvest in before the rain comes and ruins his grapes, and he says, I'll pay you fairly. Now, I'm not sure what they expected that fair to look like, but they'll take what they can get at this point, especially at 9, noon, and 3. They're kind of like, man, the day's running out. I need something. Now, verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? So here, we see him going out one hour before the workday's over. And the guy goes out looking for more workers. And sure enough, there are still some guys who are there looking for work. Why? don't know. Maybe their previous engagements didn't last all day. Maybe they were not the cream of the crop. Maybe they had other things to tend to. Who knows? He asks them why they've been standing there idle all day, which seems to infer that they hadn't had other things going on. And their answer seems to indicate that too. Verse 7, they said to him, because no one has hired us. Okay. (laughs) He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So their reasoning is simple. We, we haven't worked because nobody hired us. Okay, again, maybe they are not particularly impressive physical specimens. Maybe they're not too bright or have had, had or made issues in the past and people know them. Don't hire those jokers. They won't do anything. Don't know. All being said, nobody has hired these guys. It's 5 o'clock. And for 11 hours, they've stood around hoping to find at least a little work, a little pay, maybe a morsel of bread for their toil. 
And our master of the house says, you go into the vineyard too. He sends them to help in his work for this last hour of the day. He doesn't even discuss pay with them. Just go, he says, and they go. Desperate times, desperate measures, right? Get, go work, okay. And then this in verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Okay, now things are about to get real interesting. It's 6 p.m. The whistle blows. Fred Flintstone jumps off the dinosaur and, you know, that kind of thing. End of the work day. And the owner says to his field boss, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Now that brings us back to Jesus' statement at the beginning, right? The last first and the first last. It probably doesn't need said, but I'll say it again. Jesus is an excellent teacher, okay? His story is directly illustrating his statement. And this is the whole point of telling this story. And don't forget that. If we forget that, we run a very real danger of missing the real meaning of this story. And parables are funny that way anyway, aren't they? Remember why Jesus told parables? Back when Matthew 13, we talked about it. He said he, did, he told parables to hide truth from some people and to reveal it to others. So the plain meaning, the obvious, oh, this is easy to figure out, probably is not the real meaning. If we think we got it figured out at first, very easy, we might have to go, oh, wait a second, he's hiding truth, so we need to kind of dig in a little bit. But back to the parable. The field owner has the manager, the foreman, gather the workers together so that he can pay them. And the order of payment is specified. Begin with the last up to the first. So they're going to pay the guys who came at 5 p.m. first, then the 3 p.m. guys, then the 12 p.m. guys, then the 9 a.m. guys, and then finally the 6 a.m. guys. That's the order that they're going to pay these men. So see what happens. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now what? Look at that again. The guys who worked from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m., one hour, came for their pay. And again, I don't know what they were expecting. They hadn't negotiated terms. They had no contract. He said, go to the vineyard. Okay, they went to the vineyard. But when they received their pay, they got a denarius, which was a good wage for a full day's work. Now you figure they might have been a little bit surprised, maybe even a little excited. Probably tickled to death, even. We just got paid for a full day's work for only working an hour. Now, they didn't plan this. They didn't plot this. They just went and worked at the owner's behest. And he rewarded them and paid them a denarius. And that's a great deal. Now, how do you think the other guys, the earlier coming guys, were feeling? What were they thinking? They're probably doing some math, right? So uh, this might be even better than we thought. If one hour equals a denarius, then logically, wouldn't three hours equal three denarii? Six hours equal six, nine hours equal nine? And I bet 12 hours equals 12 denarii. I bet you. This master of the house obviously has a good reputation, and he's going to do us right, and he's, man, he's going to do us way more right than we could ever imagine. This is going to be awesome, they're thinking. And then verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. Huh. Now, What? I don't know what happened in between the one-hour guys and the 12-hour guys. We don't have that explanation. But I know that the 12-hour guys ended up getting the same amount as the one-hour guys. They thought they would receive more, the text says, but they don't. I'm assuming that everybody who worked got a denarius, regardless of how many hours they worked. The 12-hour guys, the 9, the 6, the 3, and even the one-hour guys. I would guess they all got that same denarius. That's my assumption from the flow of the text. And the 12-hour guys are happy, pleased, tickled to death because they could feed their family today. Verses 11 and 12. And on receiving it, 
They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And on receiving the denarius after working their full 12 hours, it says what? That they grumbled at the master of the house. And can't you just hear them? Now let me just say this. Think about this for a second. What if you were one of those 12-hour guys? How would you feel? Reading this text, how do you feel? There's something else that makes it good. Well, that's not right. He shouldn't have done that. That's not fair. Be careful. I can just hear him. What? One lousy denarius? Are you kidding me? You rotten son of a gun. How dare you? These jokers work for one hour and we get what they got? Look at their wording. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. Oh, that phrase, you made them equal to us. Doesn't it just smack of disgust and frustration and pride? And here's the central issue, I think. They are offended that they are counted equal of the same value as those who only worked an hour. They had, quote, borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat, after all. Seems a little dramatic. But which of us doesn't feel what these folks are feeling right now? What if this was you? What if you had spent 12 hours laboring, working, sweating, and then one lousy denarius is all you get? The same as those deadbeats who only worked an hour. Now, do you see the division and the scorekeeping here? The contest? The us and them? Church, be very careful. The danger here is the first putting themselves in a contest with these last. And the problem is what? It's pride. And I'd refine it down a little further and say it's really comparison, which has pride in it. And this comparison, combined with this pride, puts the 12-hour guys in a place where they feel like they deserve something better because they did something better. And that is what Jesus is warning about here. It's their comparative, I deserve more attitude that Jesus is zeroing in on. And that makes me think that his real issue is not with rich young men, that his issue isn't with Pharisees, that his issue isn't with Jews, but his issue is with his men, his twelve, who from Peter's question are feeling like they deserve more than anybody else. Jesus had said that they will be richly rewarded for sure, but He's warning them and us that if I think I deserve something from God, especially in comparison or contrast with the works of others, I am in danger of missing not only my reward, but missing the very heart of God. And we see that heart in verse 13. Watch this. This is awesome. But he, the master of the house, replied to one of them, the 12-hour guys, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The master of the house and the master of the harvest answers simply and powerfully. There's that word again, but. In contrast to the 12-hour guy's frustration and accusation, the master has a statement to make. But he replied to one of them. Oh, hey there, Peter. It's almost like he's zeroing in on Peter. He replied to one of them. And I can just imagine him looking Peter in the eye. And he replied to one of them, Friend. Look at this word in Greek. The word for friend means a comrade, a mate, partner. It's a kindly address. Friend. And it's from the word, if you see there at the beginning, from etes, which means a clansman, somebody who's in the same clan as you, the same family. 
Now, I don't want to overemphasize this, but I do want to make sure that we see it. The master of the house, who is obviously a wealthy, influential man, a hiring man, a paying man, replies to this common day laborer's grumbles with the word friend. He refers to him as a comrade, a maid, a partner. He replies in a kind way, intimating friendship and even kinship with this grumbler. He's not addressing him in anger or superiority, although he surely could, but he chooses not to. He appeals to his good relationship and from the definition, his kinship with this guy in his response. He could have responded in anger, but he responds in love. There just might be a lesson for us to learn there. Friend, calmly, rationally, explaining the state of things. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I didn't wrong you, he says, truthfully. We had an agreement, didn't we? Remember back in the pre-dawn market this morning, I came and found you. I chose you. And I told you what I would pay you for your labor for the day. We agreed that a denarius was desirable for you and for me. And in that agreement, you came to my vineyard and worked 12 hours for a denarius. Do you remember that? Back when this was good news to you? When this made you happy? When this moved you from unemployed to employed? When this moved you from having no hope for the day to having hope for the day? Remember that 12 hours ago? Did you not agree with me then? So now what? Verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. That's right. Now, out of context, that can sound like a pretty in-your-face statement, but remember how he addressed him from the beginning. It is a little matter-of-fact, but it's true. And it's actually serving to reconcile them in my mind. Take what belongs to you and go. Which is what would be the next step after you got paid, right? What would you do? You go. He's not saying, get out of here, you bum. He's like, here, here's your denarius that you agreed to, that you worked for. This is yours. Take it and go. It's yours now. You have held up your end of our agreement, and now I'm holding up mine. This denarius is yours. Take it and go. Which is what you should do at the end of a work day. You leave. You're done. Go home. And reward yourself and your family with the fruit of your labors. You've earned it. As far as what I gave these other folks... Well, I made a choice, and that choice was to give to the one-hour guys the same thing I agreed to give you in the early hours of today. You take what is yours, I'll take what is mine, and I'll do what I want to with it. I choose to give the one-hour guys the same. That's theirs, you have yours, I have mine, and we'll all do with it what we want to do because now it's ours. And I can just hear them, yeah, but... Well, but, yeah, but, but, that's not fair. Verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? (laughs) The master of the house had said that the denarius that the 12-hour guys had earned is theirs now. They're free to do with what is theirs as they wish. Is he not allowed to do the same with what's his? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Well, of course he is. If he has a thousand denarii, they're his. He can bury them in a coffee can if he wants. He can take them and go play Pac-Man all day if he wants. He can give them to folks who've worked 12 hours. Or he can give them to folks who've worked one hour. Is he not allowed? Of course he is. And then watch this. Or do you begrudge my generosity? And this... This is the meat today. This is the thick part of the meat today. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Of course he is. Of course we are. So then, or, I can do what I want with my own stuff. That's not the source of the problem. Well, if that's not the problem here, could it be something else? 
this or that? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now get this. If the problem is not what I do with my own stuff, then there's one other option. That other option is that you begrudge my generosity. And what the master of the house here is saying is that it's one or the other. And since it wasn't the first, since we're all in agreement that I can do what I want with what, I, what is mine, it must be the second. The problem here with the 12-hour guys is that they begrudge the master's generosity. That phrase, do you begrudge, is really interesting. And I'm going to put it up here for you in the Greek. Do you begrudge is how we translate this. Now look at it. O ophthalmus poneris aimi. Now let me break that down for you a little bit. I'm no Greek scholar. But the O and the aimi, O is the... And Imi is is. So the and is. So those are kind of articles, okay? And what do you think ophthalmos means? Anybody ever go to an ophthalmologist? What do they work on? Eyes, okay? They're eye doctors. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years. Sorry. So ophthalmos has to do with the eye. Okay, the I paneros is. Now, what's that word paneros mean? Because it describes the I that he's talking about here. I won't bore you with this whole thing. Paneros, okay? Evil, wicked, full of labors, annoyances, hardships, oppressed and harassed by labors, bringing toils, annoyances, perils, a time full of peril, bad, of a bad nature or condition, in a physical sense, diseased or blind, in an ethical sense, evil, wicked, bad. Now, look at that. This landowner asks these guys if the problem might be that their eye is poneros. I can do what I want with what's mine. We're all, we all agree to that. Could it be that the problem is that your eye is wicked? Could it be that you're looking at this situation in a wicked way? The problem was the way that they were looking at the situation. They were so annoyed, so harassed, seeing this situation as evil, when the real problem was their eyes and the way that they were looking at things. Their eye was bad. They were looking at things the wrong way, in a sinful way. They wanted more than what they had been given after seeing others receive what they had been given. They saw things as unfair because obviously they were worth more. They were better than those other guys. They begrudged their benefactor because he didn't see their worth, obviously. He hadn't seen their sacrifice. He doesn't see their superiority. And they blamed him. They blamed him for his generosity. They blamed him for his obvious oversight. And what they saw as an oversight was literally just him being generous. And they loathed it. They should have rejoiced for the other guys, right? They should have been in awe of the kindness and the goodness of this guy who was doing what he said he would do for them. And then saying, wow, he even shared that kindness in abundance for those other guys. But they couldn't see past themselves. So they begrudged the landowner and missed the point of the whole deal. And Jesus wants to make sure that his men don't miss the point. Verse 16, last verse. So, the last will be first and the first last. So we're back where we started, right? Mostly. Our first word here is different than at the beginning. We started today with the word but. But the last will be first and the first last. Here... We have so instead of but. So here points to a conclusion, not a contrast. 
After saying all that he just said, he brings it to a head by reminding them of what all this story was about. So, he says in conclusion, in summary, the last will be first and the first last. Now, what does that mean? Well, like the story told, the last got paid first and the first got paid last and they all got paid the same. So, Peter... In your wondering if your reward will be greater than others, watch yourself. Check your eye. What you want, what you are seeking, what you are proposing, that your sacrifice was greater than others, that you deserve more than others, puts you in a dangerous territory. So, know that in the kingdom of the heavens, God's grace and benevolence is to be celebrated in the lives of each individual believer, not competed against or competed for. Now, we got more to go there, but I want to transition here into application. And right before we go into application, we have to ask ourselves, what is the point of this parable? Now, I have been taught, and I have taught, and have thought before this week, That Jesus is showing that those saved in the late stages of God's plan, the Gentiles, will be equal with the Jews. That's the way I've always seen this parable. And that he's introducing this fact that these Gentile believers who are going to be included in the 11th hour of God's plan, after the Jews have labored and labored and labored for these 4,000 years, the Gentiles are going to be equal with them. But let me ask you a question. Is Jesus going to tell a story that communicates... That you work and get paid with salvation. No, he is not. Bugs Bunny says, no. So the payment in the parable can't be salvation. Okay? So he's not paying the laborers who earned their salvation. We know that's not how this works, right? Okay, so that, that, that gives us a problem then with the interpretation that this is about Gentiles and Jews. So the payment can't be salvation. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. And if you haven't read Warren Wiersbe stuff, you need to. It's good stuff. Warren Wiersbe says it this way. This parable has nothing to do with salvation. The denarius, a day's wages in that time, does not represent salvation for nobody works for his salvation. Nor is the parable talking about rewards for we are not all going to receive the same reward. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians 3.8, And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. End of quote. So then what is this parable about? Let me tell you what this parable is about. It's about Peter's statement. And Peter's heart lifting himself up, looking down on this rich young guy who walked away, exalting himself and saying, I'm not like that guy. And therefore God must really be happy with me. And he must really see my labor, and I must be going to get a lot more than other people. The attitude of Jesus' disciples and how they view their service, especially in light of comparison or contrast with other service and rewards. I said it earlier, I really think that this is addressing Peter fishing for an attaboy or a pat on the back or a bigger reward than other people because of his and the other disciples' quote, sacrifice. Jesus already said that what they gain from all of this makes what they gave up not really a sacrifice. They get back what they had given up a hundredfold. They'll sit on thrones, oh, and they'll inherit eternal life. You reckon that's enough? And isn't it a sheer joy that God can reward who He wants, how He wants? Now I want to ask you this as we move into application. What is your attitude toward your service, especially compared to or contrasted with other people's service? Because that's what this parable is about. Three G's. And you're like, we're in a 5G world, man. What's this 3G stuff? I got C3G, I can't even get on the internet anymore, right? And I'm really proud of the first one. Okay, 3Gs are giddy up, gratitude, and grace. 
Giddy up, that's spelled G-I-D-D-Y-U-P, giddy up, gratitude and grace. Giddy up. What do you think when you hear the word giddy up? You're probably on a horse, right? And you're kicking that joker and you're telling it to do what? Get going, move, do something. Don't sit there, don't stand there, don't lay down. Giddy up, giddy up. Maybe go faster. And the application for giddy up is get to doing what you are supposed to do. Do what you're supposed to do in the kingdom. And stop comparing yourself to others for good or for bad. Don't look at your service and say, well, I'm not like so-and-so, or I'm better than so-and-so, or I'm not as good as so-and-so, and I wish I could do what so-and-so did. But, you know me, I've just got this, this all I do is this little thing. And, uh, and you know what I want to say to you today? Giddy up! Get moving! Do what you're supposed to do in the kingdom of the heavens. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop thinking that because you're not on some foreign mission field living in poverty that you don't have rewards in heaven. Or stop thinking just because you've been on the mission field that you're going to get more rewards than somebody else. That's not the point. You may very well get more rewards. But what's your heart attitude? And if you let your heart attitude stop you from doing what you're supposed to be doing in God's kingdom, giddy up. We see this at the end of the Gospel of John. They're walking along the sea after Jesus had uh, been on the shore and they were out fishing. Peter jumps in the water and swims because they realize it's Jesus. Jesus had cooked them breakfast. And they're talking and, and, and Jesus reinstates Peter, asks him three times, Do you love me? You know I love you. Blah, 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 blah. And then he says, When you were young, you did what you wanted to. But when you get older, somebody's going to do things to you. Basically tell him how he's going to die. And watch what Peter does. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was John, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, stop looking at other horses. Giddy up. Get moving. Do what you're supposed to do. Quit comparing yourself to John. And it's like Peter saying, so I'm going to get killed for my faith. What about John? Is he going to get killed too? Because I'm thinking if I get killed, maybe he should get killed too, right? I mean, that's just fair, right? And what does Jesus say? Giddy up, Peter. You do what I tell you to do. And if I let him live until I come back, what's that to you? You follow me. And what I would say to every one of us this morning is, church, follow Jesus. Giddy up, follow Him. Stop looking at Chris and stop looking at Luke and stop looking at Will and stop looking at Lily and look at Jesus and follow Him. And trust the heart of your Master who I promise you, scripturally, wholeheartedly, will reward you. He will bless you. He will give you much more than you deserve. So stop comparing yourself to other people. I would commend... I'm not going to read this. I had it in here, but it's just too long. If, if you're taking notes, write down 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26, and that's where the body is one and has many members. At the end of it, it says this, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the hand to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So stop judging your performance by the performance of others. And understand that we need to rejoice together, work together, labor together, live together, love together. And that's the design of the body. Not what about this guy? Giddy up. Follow Jesus the way that you're supposed to follow Jesus. And that doesn't make it all relevant, relative. There is objective truth. 
but in your subjective experience, you follow Jesus according to what the scriptural principles are and the way that he has gifted you. I'll move on. And do it with what? Giddy up with gratitude. You know what? I think we're really good at showing gratitude for things done for us. But what about gratitude for the welfare of my brother? Are you like, God, thank you so much for providing for this person. God, thank you so much for blessing this person. God, thank you so much for elevating this person to this position. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our midst. Not just in my life. My life is important, yes. But do I have gratitude for what I see God doing in our midst? Ooh, what about another church? What if God's blessing another church? Well, they're, they're not as good as us. What about God? Thank you so much for bringing people into this church, into this body, into that church and that body. God, thank you for what you're doing in Africa. God, thank you for what you're doing in Asia. God, thank you for what you're doing in South America. I have gratitude for who you are and what you're doing everywhere. Not just right here. Nothing wrong with being grateful for what he's doing. You should do that. But it's a big world. It is a holy Catholic church. It's a universal church. And God is at work even in the midst of not the church. Do you have gratitude for what God is doing or do you begrudge my generosity? Which asks the question as far as gratitude goes, how is your eye? How's your eye toward other people? Let me tell you what tensions are high in the world. How's your attitude toward Democrats and Republicans? How's your eye toward conservatives and progressives? Are you annoyed by other people? You're like, you're getting on my nerves right now. Good. Do you feel slighted or indignant because of your comparison game with other people? Do they get on your nerves because they wear masks? Do they get on your nerves because they don't wear masks? They get on my nerves. They annoy me. I'm not being treated fairly in comparison with them. Oh, poor me. I didn't get what they got. Warren Wiersbe again. Whenever we find a complaining servant, we know that he has not fully yielded to the master's will. Whenever we find a complaining servant, we know he has not fully yielded to the master's will. Anybody ever been a complaining servant? Anybody ever had a job that you just grumbled and complained and fussed about everything they ever did? Yeah, me too. Or maybe you do it in your home. Maybe you do it with your spouse. Maybe you do it with your kids. Grumble, 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 grumble. My cross to carry. People, I can't believe people getting on my nerves. You're not fully yielded to the master's will. Your eye is bad. Your eye is evil. And you begrudge the generosity of God. Because maybe somebody gets a blessing you don't get. Or maybe somebody doesn't get a correction or a rebuke that you do get. And so you look at them and your eye is evil. An eye that is full of gratitude is not an evil eye. A life that's not marked by grumbling and complaining... That's what God's after. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's a good calling, right? Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love do what? Serve one another. For the whole law was fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. If I'm comparing and contrasting myself with other people, I'm not grateful for who God is, what God's doing in my life, what God's doing in their lives, what God's doing in the big wide world. And if I'm not careful, 
I'm going to consume my brother and my brother's going to consume me because we're biting and devouring one another. Peter had bit and devoured this rich young man and spit him out. What a joke. He wouldn't leave everything and follow Jesus, but boy, I did. Look at me. What am I going to get out of this? And Jesus said, you're going to get a tongue lashing is what you're going to get, brother. Because your eye is evil. Because you're just after your own reward. We need eyes full of, hearts full of, lives full of gratitude for who God is, what God's doing in us and through us, and what God is doing in and through His people everywhere. Listen to me. You are not in a negotiated contract with God. When you feel like you are, it puts you in radical competition with others and makes you continually suspicious of God Himself. Do I not deserve something better, God? Have I not done this for you? Have I not went here for you? And look at so-and-so. He's blessed. He's got everything. He's got good stuff coming out of his ears. And here I am languishing in poverty. Why do you hate me? That's what happens when we feel like we're in a negotiated contract with God. But gratitude flows from understanding that all that God gives us and all that God is doing is based on one thing alone. That's our last application point. It's grace. I'm afraid our reaction to this parable is literally, well, that just doesn't seem fair to me. And our reaction should be like, grace. That's grace. And it's beautiful. God praise you for your grace. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this is not a contract. What we just read is not a contract. God's not saying, you do your part and I'll do your, my part. I do my part, you do your part, we'll be good, okay? You keep the terms. Grace, salvation... Rewards in heaven is the loving act of a sovereign, omnipotent God who chooses to freely lavish His grace on us. Are we amazed by grace? Once your enemy, now seated at your table. When I hear the story of a God of mercy who shared humanity and suffered by our side, of the cross they nailed you to, that could not hold you, and now you're making all things new by the power of your risen life. What can I do? But thank you. What can I do but give my life to you? Hallelujah. What can I do but praise you? What can I do but make everything I do every day a hallelujah? Why? Because I want to giddy up. I want to live a life full of gratitude based on the grace of God. And it's all grace. I'll close with this quote from Brenda Manning. My message, unchanged for more than 50 years, is this. God loves you unconditionally as you are and not as you should be because nobody is as they should be. It's the message of grace. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day, all day long, the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. 
a grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal, reeking of sin, and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. This grace is indiscriminate compassion. It works without, any, without asking anything of us. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us to see the beauty and the power of your grace. And may we celebrate it in our own lives, absolutely. And may we celebrate it in the lives of others. May we rejoice over what you rejoice over. May we stop comparing ourselves and contrasting ourselves with other people and focus our eyes squarely on you and celebrate your goodness in the lives of other people along with what you're doing in our own lives. God, may we not get distracted by thinking that we deserve more than we deserve. We deserve death, hell, and the grave. And you give us salvation and eternal life and eternal rewards. And grace, and grace, and grace, and grace. Open our eyes and help us to live grace-filled lives. Extending grace to other people. Extending gratitude to you. Doing the work that you've called us to do. And trusting your heart in the process. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And I would remind you, don't congregate in here. If you want to go out, hang out, do it outside in the open air so that we can protect and love on each other. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said... Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.